Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to The Ace, Alex Cardinal Entertainment Network, with your host, the crazy Alex Cardinal. From Springfield, Massachusetts, you can expect the unexpected on the Ace Network. Now, on to today's show. You are listening to the Alex Cardinelli Show here on Ace Network. The Alex Cardinelli Show is a talk show that will talk about anything and everything from WWE wrestling to movie reviews to politics to even current news and events. You will get your entertainment and news fix. Alex Cardinelli promises to deliver a quality talk show that you will enjoy. Alex will share topics you want to hear with a young man's point of view. So what do you have to say? Do you, the listener, want a piece of the action? We'll get in on the action by calling into the talk show at 1-347-989-8142. Are you ready for a fun talk show? Then let's get on to Alex Cardinelli, who is live right now at Ace Network Studios. Take it away, Alex. It's Crime Time Live on ACE Network. The only time where Alex will break the rules as a citizen to talk about some of the most famous crimes to have ever taken place in the United States. If you love crime, then this is the time to listen to crime. Coming up right now, we will discuss crime and everything crime. Call in at 1-347-989-8142 to discuss a crime story you like or join the chat. Now it's crime time. Live in... for today's show is I'm going to discuss the possible motives 
for robbery. I'll have a discussion on some local robberies right here in western Massachusetts. And then, last but not least, I'll talk about some of the famous robberies that took place in the United States of America. So you're going to have a nice history lesson as we take a look back on some of the most popular robberies that took place in the United States as well as learn about some of the robberies that took place in my area, in my neck of the woods, and you'll learn the possible motives for robbery. So I've got a lot to talk about tonight. Now, robberies are one of the most common crimes, believe it or not. They're ones that occur every day around the whole United States of America. I guarantee you somewhere in the United States of America right now, someone or one group of people are actually planning to commit a crime and commit a robbery crime. That's right. I bet you right now someone out there is planning on committing a grand robbery. And a lot of the robberies are committed for money because someone is looking for money to buy something or someone is looking for money to insert dominance. And we'll talk about that as we talk about possible motives for robberies. Now, today's show is being broadcast live like every single show that I do here on the ACE Network. So you're welcome to call in. The number to call in is one three four seven nine eight nine eight one four two. You can call in tonight to share any robbery stories you might have or discuss anything you know about robberies. One three four seven nine eight nine eight one four two. So if you know someone that has been robbed or if you know anything about robberies, or you have your own story you'd like to share about robberies, please go ahead and call in. 1-347-989-8142. And we would like to hear about your personal stories about robberies. So I'll keep my, my eye on the studio for any callers that we uh, get tonight on this fantastic show. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. I have a lot to talk about tonight. Now, what are the possible motives for robbery? Well, based on my criminal justice research, these are the motives for robbery. Quote, unquote, madness, illogical thinking, irrational, insane, unable to decipher right from wrong, etc. Lust, passionate desire to do something, kleptomania, sadism, vengeance, etc. And by the way, for those of you who don't know what kleptomania is, kleptomania is the desired urge to steal something and you don't have second thoughts about it. For example, you might think to yourself, I want to steal this. And a normal person would say, no, I don't want to steal this because I don't want to get in trouble. But For someone that has kleptomania, they don't have that thought of getting in trouble. They just have that thought of, I want to steal this, and how how am I going to steal it? They put it in a series of plans, and eventually they steal it. So that's kleptomania in a nutshell. We'll do a show on uh, kleptomania sometime in this crime time hour. Next is comfort. Selfishly acquiring something not needed. Tradition, greed, professional thieves etc. Survival. This is very common with robberies. 
A lot of the robberies are based on survival, desperate need of money or other goods as means of protecting health or reputation. This is one that is used by a lot of drug dealers. A lot of druggies out there are going to commit, commit a lot of robberies so that they can get money for their drugs or get supplies or get something that they can sell that's worth a lot of value so they can get their cocaine, they can get their marijuana, their heroin, whatever they have. A lot of the robberies out there that are committed are for money. Either to survive because someone may be poor or they might need money to buy drugs or something of that nature. So a lot of the robberies that take place in the United States of America are from survival. Now the next one you have is opportunity. Committing the crime just because it's too easy or risk-free. Yes, for some people out there, they'll just commit a crime because they have the perfect opportunity. I like to call these kinds of people the perfect opportunist because they see a moment to steal something and they're going to jump on it. Now, some robbers will do this for the thrill of it. They'll do it for committing the crime for pure excitement or entertainment and purely out of boredom. Now, this one is very rare, but if someone is in a gang member or if they're in a gang and need approval, people will steal and rob for approval, gaining respect from or acceptance by others or self, peer pressure, self-satisfaction, demonstrating power, etc. is another um, possible motive for robberies. And last but not least, this is one that you don't see very often, but hate. Hate can sometimes lead to robberies, attack on race, religion, gender, class, group, etc., or personal hate for someone could lead to robberies. So those are all your possible motives for robberies. Again, you have madness, you have lust, comfort, survival, opportunity, thrill, approval, and hate. So hopefully you guys are now able to understand why someone may commit robbery. Nine times out of ten, it's for survival. Um, I would definitely not rob anyone if I had to. If it was, if it came down to me, life and death, if I had to rob to stay alive, I would. That's how bad I definitely do not want to rob, but... If it came down to life and death, and I, if I had to steal money to get food to live, I'd do it. But that's that's the most common robberies that people do. Some people get homeless, and they have no choice but to steal for food, and I understand that. And that's the good side of the survival robberies, even though it's not really considered good. But out there, there's also a bad side of survival robberies which would include people like the alcoholics that steal to get money for their booze, and you've got the druggies out there that steal to get money for their drugs. So it all depends on how you take robberies, and all the robberies out there are crimes, and you will go to jail if you get caught. So, again, I am recommending you not to commit robbery, even if you are really, really poor, you can find money some other way as well. So those are all the possible motives for robbery. All right. 
Now let's get into the fun part of today's show. Now we'll talk about some robberies that occurred all over the United States of America. But first, I want to talk about some local robberies that happened right here in western Massachusetts and Springfield, Massachusetts, because you guys all know that I, Alice Cardinelli, live right here in Springfield, Mass. So um, some of these robberies, I don't know the exact date or the extent of these robberies because a few of them happened when I was a young kid. So I'm just going by hearsay and what I remember from my grandmother and my mother for a couple of these robberies. But the first robbery happened at the Sunoco uh, in Indian Orchard, Mass., on Pasco Road, and that was a robbery. Now, I remember I was in middle school during this robbery. It was back in 2007 or 2008. It was a while ago. But it took place at the Sunoco in Indian Orchard on Pasco Road. One person was stabbed and killed. I believe at least one person was stabbed and killed there. And, of course, the robbers robbed the employees of all the money that was in the cash register. And the reason I remember this robbery was because it was one of the largest robberies in the Boston Road area of Springfield, Mass. And generally, back then, the Boston Road area was kind of like the more um, nice area of Springfield, Mass. But at the time, a lot of um, bad people, if that's what you want to call them, were moving into the area. So robberies started picking up around that time in 2007. So it was kind of a shocker to my parents and all my neighbors up here to hear about a massive robbery that was like 10 or 15 minutes away from where I live because robberies at that time weren't as popular as they are now in my area. So, yeah, I can remember one person was stabbed and one person died, at least one person died, because I'm just going on hearsay for this. Um, it, could have been more, it could have been more than one person that died, but all I remember is hearing about that one person that died, and, of course, the money was stolen from that robbery. Now, I tried to do research on Google about this robbery, but I couldn't find anything. So it might have even been 2005 or 2006, so all I know is that one was quite a while ago. All right, that was the first robbery that I remember from my area. And then we had the Smoking Deals, Boston Road, Springfield, Massachusetts robbery. And this happened this year. This happened in January of 2015. Three masked men entered the store. Two of them were armed with guns, and a third was armed with a knife. Now, this is kind of funny. This is kind of a funny robbery. Now, the lady employee, the female employee, gets shot in her ass trying to run to the back of the store. Now, I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny how that worked out. But um, the female employee actually got shot in her buttocks um, as the professional way of saying that, but she got shot in her ass trying to run to the back of the store. And the owner gets stabbed in his leg. So um, the only two employees in the store got shot and stabbed, one in the ass 
and one in the leg. Now, the suspects then stole merchandise along with cash that was ready for deposit in the office. So that was actually a very, very big crime on uh, Boston Road in January of 2015, because I remember seeing a whole bunch of cruisers and police cars by that uh, smoking deal shop, and we could actually see them from our street, and our street's like five or ten minutes away. So that was a very, very big crime. I'm, I'm guessing that the suspects actually fled the scene on foot, and they were running all over Boston Road. But, yeah, that was a very big crime, a very big robbery in January of 2015. And, yes, up here in Western Mass, there is a hell of a lot of robberies now than there was, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago. Our neighborhood was a lot nicer 10 or 15 years ago. That's because we had a lot of nicer people in our area 10 or 15 years ago. But now we have a lot of robberies and things going on because we have a lot of drug dealers and a lot of druggies up here. All right, so the next robbery that I'm going to talk about for Western Mass is from April of 2015. So this was another recent robbery. This is from Boston Road as well, and this took place in Springfield, Massachusetts. There are three suspects for this one, 21-year-old Miguel Salas, 22-year-old Justin Whalen, and 22-year-old Carissa Pribison all of Springfield. The robbery started with a home invasion where money was stolen. Then they robbed a golf gas station and a mobile gas station. Cash and cigarette cartons were reportedly found in the glove compartment, and the gun used in the robberies ended up being a large BB gun. I actually did not hear about this robbery, so today is the first time that I actually heard about it. So you guys, as well as I, are hearing about this robbery at the same time. All right, so the last local robbery I'm going to talk about is one that I actually found very, very uh, close to home because this is a store that I frequent at. You guys know me. And if you guys listen to the Ace Network, you guys know that I am a tropical fish keeper, and I'm sponsored by School of Fish, Inc., right here in Western Mass. So this robbery actually took place at School of Fish, Inc., and also a local package store that is close by to School of Fish, Inc., and this robbery took place last year, May 21st, 2014, this robbery took place. So I found it very shocking that School of Fish got robbed and a local package store got robbed. So I'm going to go ahead and read this article to you guys. Quote, unquote, from WWLP.com. And the title of this article is Fish Supply Vodka Thefts Caught on Camera. Police Sergeant John Delaney told 22 News that the first theft happened at the School of Fish store at 1865 Page Boulevard in Indian Orchard this past Thursday evening. He says the suspect, a white man in his 20s, grabbed two protein skimmers worth a total of about $530 each and ran out of the store. The store owner chased after the suspect who dropped the skimmers but got away in a purple car driven by a woman. 
Delaney says that the owner got the plate number, which was Massachusetts number 5CDV30. The second theft happened at Bonus Package Store at 42 Parker Street in Indian Orchard just before 8 o'clock Sunday evening. In that case, Delaney says a black man standing about 6 feet tall and weighing in about 250 pounds entered the store, grabbed two large bottles of Grey Goose vodka, and walked out the front door. The stolen vodka was worth $88. Both thefts were caught on surveillance camera and surveillance video, and police are hoping the release of the suspect's images will help lead to their arrest. So obviously, this was a year ago, so I am quite sure that both suspects were apprehended and caught. But I think that's one of the most robberies that, um, or one of the most closest robberies to me because I shop at School of Fish quite a lot. So that was one that uh, hit me pretty good because I know the owners of School of Fish, Inc., and they have some wonderful prices. And if you can't afford something, sometimes it will come down on price for you. So I was kind of shocked to hear that they got robbed. Um, I mean, why would you want to rob from School of Fish, Inc. when they're family-owned and they have some uh, wonderful prices? But some people will just rob for the thrill of it, I guess. So those are all my local robberies. Now, you're welcome to call in and explain some of your local robberies. I'd love that. So if you're listening live to today's show, please go ahead and call in one three four seven nine eight nine eight one four two and discuss some local robberies in your neck of the woods. That would be awesome. Again, that's one three four seven nine eight nine eight one four two. All right. In the meantime, while we wait for some callers, we are now going to go ahead and start talking about some famous robberies. These are some robberies that are well known all around the United States of America. And I'm going to start with a very old famous robbery. But it is well known, and a lot of American citizens know about this robbery. And that is the case of the famous Bonnie and Clyde. Now, your suspects were Bonnie Elizabeth Parker and Clyde Chestnut Barrow, a.k.a. Clyde Champion Barrow. Now, Clyde Parker or excuse me, Clyde Barrow, was born on March 24th, 1909, and he died on May 23rd, 1934. So he died 81 years ago tomorrow. Bonnie Parker was born on October 1st, 1910, and died on May 23rd, 1934. Now, who was Bonnie and Clyde? They were famous robbers from Dallas, Texas, that traveled around central United States robbing people during the Great Depression. They had a gang who helped commit their robberies. The gang included Buck Burrow, Blanche Burrow, Raymond Hamilton, W.D. Jones, Joel Palmer, Ralph Fultz, and Henry Messevin. All of their robberies captured the eyes 
of all the states in the United States in the public enemy era. Their gang had killed at least nine police officers and several civilian bystanders. Bonnie and Klein would eventually be ambushed and killed by law officers. Now, let's talk about the crimes that Bonnie and Clyde had committed. Bonnie and Clyde first started robbing stores and gas stations as small robberies. Their goal was to collect enough money and firepower to launch a raid of liberation against East Ham Prison. In April 30, 1932, Clyde Barrow was the driver in a robbery in Hillsboro, Texas. During this robbery, a store owner was shot and killed. On October, excuse me, on August 5th, 1932, by orders of Bonnie Parker, gang members opened fire, killing a deputy and seriously injuring a sheriff. This was the first time Barrow and his gang killed a lawman. Eventually, they reached a total of nine. They kidnapped lawmen and robbery victims so that they would not turn them in. All throughout 1933, Clyde and Bonnie were able to escape law officials, eventually losing gang members, either from being shot at and being killed or being captured by the police. In 1933, Bonnie and Clyde had shot and killed many police officers. On November 28, 1938, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Parker and Barrow for the January 1933 killing of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis. It was Parker's first warrant for murder. In 1934, January 16, 1934, Clyde helped several gang members escape jail. During the jailbreak, escapee Joe Palmer shot prison officer Major Joe Crossan. This attack attracted the full power of the Texas and federal government to the manhunt for Burrow and Parker. On April 1, 1934, Easter Sunday, Barrow and Henry Messvin kill two young highway patrolmen, H.C. Murphy and Edward Bryant Willer, at the intersection of Route 114 and Dove Road near Grapevine, Texas. An eyewitness account stated that Burrow and Parker fired the fatal shots, and the story got widespread coverage. Wow, that sucks to have that happen on Easter Sunday. All right, let's talk about the deaths of Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were ambushed and killed on May 23, 1934, on a rural road in Bineville Parish, Louisiana. The couple appeared in daylight in an automobile and were shot by a posse of four Texas officers and two Louisiana officers. All right? That's how Bonnie and Clyde got killed. They were ambushed by four police officers, and the officers were able to shoot and kill them, unfortunately, but they deserved it. Now, how did Bonnie and Clyde get caught specifically? 
Well, at approximately 9.15 in the morning on May 23rd, the, the police officers concealed in the bushes and almost ready to concede defeat heard Barrow's stolen Ford V8 approaching at a high speed. The police officer's official report had Barrow stopping to speak with Messifin's father, who had been planted there with his truck that morning to distract Barrow and force him into the lane closer to the, to the police officers. The lawman opened fire, killing Barrow and Parker while shooting a combined total of about 130 rounds. Parker screamed and was shot and killed next. Researchers have said Bonnie and Clyde were shot more than 50 times. Others claim closer to 25 wounds per corpse or 50 total. Now, Bonnie and Clyde is a really old case. It is 81 years old, but it still holds the record for being the most famous robbery case in the United States of America. Now, can you guys believe that? A case that is 81 years old still holds the record for being one of the most popular and most famous crimes and robberies in the United States of America. Yes, that's true. The Bonnie and Clyde case is so popular that television shows have been made focusing on Bonnie and Clyde, and television movies have been made focusing on Bonnie and Clyde. But my thoughts on this case is that Bonnie and Clyde got what they deserved because they shot police officers and they thought that they were going to get away with killing the law, breaking the law, and stealing. So next time you shoot a police officer, don't be afraid and don't think you're not going to get shot because you will. So that is perhaps the most famous robbery case in the United States, Bonnie and Clyde. All right, now let's move on to our next famous robbery, and that is the Great Brink robbery. And I know this one all too well because I live right here in Massachusetts, and this, this robbery took place in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is probably um, the biggest robbery in the Massachusetts history. All right, that's just my personal opinion, but I think this is the biggest robbery in Mass. We'll find out. So what is the Great Brinks robbery? Well, the Great Brinks robbery was an armed robbery of the Bricks building at the corner of Prince Street and Commercial Street in the north end of Boston, Massachusetts, on January 17, 1950, 65 years ago. That's right, this robbery took place 65 years ago. Now, the robbery resulted in the theft of $1 million, $218,211 in cash. So get that, it took $1,218,211 in cash and $1,557,183 in checks. So the total robbery of this uh, robbery was one million two hundred eighteen thousand and two hundred eleven dollars in cash and one million five hundred fifty seven thousand and hundred eighty three dollars in checks, money orders and other secreties. It was then the largest robbery in the history of the United States of America. 
the robbery skillfully executed with few clues left at the crime scene was billed as the crime of the century. The robbery was the work of an 11-member gang, all of whom were later arrested. How does one plan such a huge robbery? Well, Joseph, Big Joe McGinnis, was the originator of the heft, according to information later gained from Joseph Specks Okufi. He brought Anthony Pinfo and Stanley Gus Gassaro. O'Keefe and Gassaro secretly entered the Brinks Depot. They picked the outside lock with an ice pick and the inner door with a piece of plastic. They later temporarily removed the cinders, cylinders from the five locks one at a time so that a locksmith could make duplicate keys for them. Once this was done, Pino recruited seven other men, including Pino's brother-in-law, Vincent Costa, Michael Vincent Vinnie Gigan, Thomas Francis Richardson, Aldoff Jazz Moffey, Henry Baker, James Jimmy Faharity, and Joseph Barney Banfield. The gang decided to wait for the optimal time for their heast. Pino studied schedules and was able to determine what staff was doing based on when the lights in the building windows were on. O'Keefe and Kisaria stole the plans for the site alarms. The gang members entered the building on practice runs after the staff had left for the day. Costa monitored the depot from a room of a tenement building across Prince Street from the Brinks building. By the time they acted, the gang had planned and trained for two years. Okay, so let's talk about the crime. On January 17, 1950, after six aborted attempts, the robbers decided that the situation was favorable. They donned clothing similar to that of a Brinks uniform with navy pea coats and chafer's caps, along with rubber Halloween masks, gloves, and rubber-soled shoes. While Pino and driver Banfield remained in the getaway car, seven other men entered the building at 6.55 p.m. With their copied keys, they came to the second floor through the locked doors and surprised, bound, and gagged five Brinks employees who were storing and counting money. They failed to open a box of the payroll of the General Electric Company, but scooped up everything else. The robbers walked out at 7.30 p.m. They had taken money and four revolvers from the employees. The gang rapidly counted the loot, gave some of the members their cut, and agreed not to touch the rest for six years, after which the statute of limitations would have expired. The robbers scattered to establish their alibis. Arrest. In June of 1950, O'Keefe and Gascara were arrested in Pennsylvania for a burglary. O'Keefe was sentenced to three years in Bradford County Jail and Gascara five to 20 years in the Western State Penitentiary at Pittsburgh. Police heard through their informers that O'Keefe and Gascara demanded money from Pino and Magnus 
in Boston to fight their convictions. It was later claimed that most of O'Keefe's share went to his legal defense. FBI agents tried to talk to O'Keefe and Gascara in prison, but the two professed ignorance of the Brinks robbery. Gang members came under suspicion, but there was not enough evidence for an indictment. So law enforcement kept pressure on the suspects. Aldolf Maffey was convicted and sentenced to nine months for income tax evasion. After O'Keefe was released, he was taken to stand trial for another burglary and parole violations, and he was released on bail of $17,000. O'Keefe later claimed that he had never seen his portion of the loot after he had given it to Maffey for safekeeping. Apparently, in need of money, he kidnapped Vincent Costa and demanded his part of the loot for ransom. Pino paid a small ransom, but then decided to try to kill O'Keefe. After a couple of attempts, he hired underworld hitman Elmer Trigger, Berkey, to kill O'Keefe. Berkey traveled to Boston and shot O'Keefe, seriously wounding, but failing to kill him. FBI approached O'Keefe in the hospital, and on January 6, 1956, he eventually decided to talk. On January 12, 1956, just five days before the statute of limitations was to run out, the FBI arrested Baker, Costa, Gagan, Meafy, McKinnis, and Pino. They apprehended Farrity and Richardson on May 16th in Dorchester. O'Keefe pled guilty January 18th. Costaro died on July 9th. Banford, or actually, excuse me, Banfield was already dead. A trial began on August 6, 1956. Eight of the gang members received maximum sentences of life imprisonment. All were paroled by 1971, except McGinnis, who died in prison. O'Keefe received four years and was released in 1960. Only $58,000 of the $2.7 million was recovered. And that, my friends, was the Great Brinks robbery, the largest robbery in all of Massachusetts. And I really, really think that that is the largest mem- uh, largest robbery of all of Massachusetts to recent memory. I think it is. All right, let's go down to another famous robbery that took place in the United States of America, and that is the 1998 Bank of America robbery inside the now-defunct World Trade Center. What is the 1999, or excuse me, what is the 1998 Bank of America robbery? The 1998 Bank of America robbery was a robbery which took place in the World Trade Center on January 14, 1998. The suspects were Ralph Garino and Salvatore Calasino, two Italian mobsters. In 1998, struggling mobster Ralph Garano decided to rob the World Trade Center's Bank of America. He recruited a friend named Salvatore Calasino, who had worked at the World Trade Center for 20 years. Salvatore explained to Garano that following the 1993 World Trade Center bombings, there was camera surveillance of almost everywhere inside the World Trade Centers, inside garages, and even in elevators. 
Also, all employees had to wear ID tags when operating within the building. This obviously posed a problem. After a conversation between Salvatore and Garano, the pervasive Garano congealed Salvatore into handing, handing over an ID badge only issued to trusted employees such as himself. Sal informed Garano that at a specific time, uh, a Brinks fan arrived to deliver money in the United States and foreign currencies from Bank of America's many branches and was sent by elevator to the 11th floor of the first tower of the World Trade Center. Goriano realized the potential this robbery had financially. Goriano and his brothers had been in and out of prison for petty thefts and truck hijacking. So, let's talk about planning of the crime. The plan was based on the fact that at 8.30 a.m., a Brinks truck would arrive in the World Trade Center garage, and guards would place the bags of money onto a stainless steel rolling cart. Anywhere from eight to ten bags would be delivered, but that was fairly irrelevant because a single one of the bags would be enough to satisfy Garano and Salvatore's monetary needs. Garano decided that only two of the three robbers would need guns because the employees taking the rolling cart to the 11th floor would not be carrying guns. All three robbers would need fake IDs, two guns, and some duffel bags, as well as the standard ski mask. The plan was that the men would wait for the elevator to arrive at around 8.30 in the morning and then put on their ski mask and get into the elevator before anyone could leave, then pull out their guns and get the bags of money loaded into their duffel bags, tie up the staff, and use the elevator to reach the top floor and then walk out, holding their heads away from the numerous cameras. But who committed the crime for Ralph, since Ralph did not commit the crime himself? The question is, who was the one that committed the crime for Ralph? The three men selected were known for their criminal prowess and experience. Richie Gillette was from Winter Terrence, Brooklyn. He was 39 years old and about 6 feet tall. He had a 12-page long arrest sheet for drug possession and bribery, amongst other offenses. Gillette had not held down a steady job since 1996 and had a 17-year-old son's support as well as his drug habit. Gillette selected two of his friends, Melvin Folk and Mike Reed. Folk was a 44-year-old alcoholic. He had drug and alcohol problems, and he, his wife, and son had been homeless for months since their house in Queens burned down. Reed was a 34-year-old heroin abuser whose parents had died of heroin overdoses when he was eight. His grandmother raised him. In the Bishop Boardman Apartments in Windsor, Terrence, Brooklyn, he had been found to be thieving from elderly residents when he was forced to leave. Just before the robbery, he had stolen a homeless man's food stamps. The reason Gariano picked such undesirables was that he, would, he could encourage them to believe that if they ever informed on him or anyone else or failed, they could be murdered by the mafia. 
Goriano was persuasive, and they truly believed that he was a high-ranking mobster. Okay, so enough background information. Let's talk about the crimes. On Wednesday, January 14, 1998, a Brink fan pulled into the World Trade Center garage. Two employees stayed in the van while the others unloaded the bags of money. The bags of money were in United States cash, Italian cash, Japanese cash, and French cash, also in currency as well. The two guards were, however, carrying guns and were joined by some cleaners as they went up in the elevator to the 11th floor. Simultaneously, the three thieves were entering the World Trade Center in winter wear, but only Gillette had the presence of mind to wear a hooded top to conceal his identity to the many cameras. The other two, Reed and Folk, were in attire from which they could easily be identified. Each of the men carried a duffel bag as the plan included two handguns. Reed and Folk contained pistols while Gillette's, uh, Gillette's contained handcuffs. The three men entered a passenger elevator. They got off at 8.28 a.m., and they put, and then pulled on their ski masks. Precisely one minute later, the elevator containing the money arrived on the 11th floor. The two guards began to push out the cart containing money when they looked up and saw two men carrying guns. A cleaner began praying and screaming. Gillette handcuffed the employees. As Gillette was keeping the employees under control, Folk and Reed pulled out box cutters and flashed away at the bag containing money. After eight minutes in the elevator, they pressed a button to ascend to the 22nd floor, leaving the shocked victims tied up. They removed their ski mask and put away their guns. At around 8.45 in the morning, as the three Seths Left through the World Trade Center revolving doors, Goriano watched from across the street in a car parked. Not long after the robbery had taken place, the media began covering the story and giving descriptions and broadcasting and printing images of the robbers. This was, of course, a problem for Goriano. Soon, the FBI had Melvin Folk in custody. He was not sure if Folk knew his surname, but he would have known Gillette and if Gillette if Gillette was apprehended, he could choose to portray Goriano as the mastermind and lighten his own sentence. The fault was that Folk and Reed had returned to their old neighborhoods, and as soon as a $26,000 reward for catching the thief became available, people were identifying Reed with vigor. He was arrested after identification by a retired New York Police Department detective who knew him at a friend's house on 20th Street, Brooklyn. Soon afterward, Gillette was traveling on an Amtrak train and was observed by another passenger as behaving strangely. He was chain-smoking and holding lots of cash, so the concerned passenger informed Amtrak security. As the train pulled into Albuquerque, New Mexico, he was approached by security and asked a few questions. He was sporting a Green Bay Packers jersey with the name George Grillo attached. He told the agent that he was from New York and was going to San Bernardino. He consented to a dog search of his property and cabinet. 
Inside his duffel bag, Amtrak agent John Salazar discovered a lot of money and an ID with the name Richard Gillette. Gillette failed to explain the money, and as such, it was confiscated. Agent Salazar didn't arrest Gillette immediately and returned to his radio car and searched under the name Richard Gillette on the database of criminals. It revealed that he was wanted by the FBI for questioning. Agent Salazar returned to Gillette's cabin only to find that he had disappeared in his absence. In Albuquerque, a street-by-street search was conducted. A waitress pointed him out in a bar called Famous Sam's, but he ran outside via a back door. The FBI tracked him to a nearby hotel, and he was arrested approximately 8.30 p.m. on January 16, 1998, for participating in the Bank of America robbery. Although the FBI had the three robbers in custody, they concluded that men did not have the intelligence or initiative to pull off such a robbery and began searching for a culprit. This was a serious dilemma for Garano. He knew that Gillette was liable to inform on him because he was being detained in a New Mexico jail cell. Gariano met with his insider, Salvatore, and they had a problem aside from the three robbers. Salvatore had spent money in anticipation of receiving his payment, amounting to $57 on home improvements. He had purchased these improvements on his credit card, and his bills were coming. So he needed the money to pay off his credit card bills. Goriano had similar problems. He owed a violent member of New York's Gambino crime family $40,000, as well as the Gambino named Joey Smash. Mobsters all over New York were looking for ways to get a hold of some of Goriano's money. Goriano had some hope, so a man named Jimmy Gallo offered to launder the foreign currency and return it to Goriano in fully cleansed, untraceable United States of America dollars, but he was charging 50% of the amount laundered. Goriano refused. Richard Gillette was becoming a serious problem for Goriano. Gillette's cousin was rigging up. Goriano and asking for money. Goriano thought that if he gave Gillette some money, it might stop him from reforming, but Goriano thought he might inform form anyhow, and then the money would have been wasted. Before Goriano could figure out what to do, he was at home with his wife at a Staten Island home when two federal agents came and took him to the FBI headquarters in New York. Following his arrest, Goriano agreed to become an FBI informant on the Declavanti Mafia family. And that, my friends, is the 1997, or excuse me, 1998 World Trade Center Bank of America robbery, a very, very, very famous robbery that a lot of Americans were talking about back in the 1980s. Oh, my God, I can't even get the date right. I mean, back in the 1990s. 1998, that was a famous robbery. All right. Well, speaking of 1997, we're going to talk about the 1997 Loomis Fargo robbery in New York, in uh, North Carolina. So here is the 1997 Loomis Fargo robbery in North Carolina. Suspect is David Scott Gant. 
The Loomis Fargo bank robbery was a robbery of $17.3 million in cash from the Charlotte, North Carolina Regional Office Vault of Loomis Fargo and Company of the evening of October 4th, 1997 by armed car driver and vault supervisor David Scott Gaunt. An FBI criminal investigation, which became international in scope, ultimately resulted in the arrest and conviction of eight people directly involved in the heist, as well as 16 others who had indirectly helped them, and the recovery of approximately 95% of the stolen money. This robbery was the second largest cash robbery on United States soil at the time, as only seven months earlier in Jacksonville, Florida, on March 29, 1997, Philip Noel Johnson had taken $18.8 million from the Loomis Fargo armed vehicle he was driving. Gaunt had struck up a relationship with fellow Loomis Fargo employee Kelly Campbell. They contained and continued to maintain contact even after Campbell left the company. In August of 1997, Campbell informed Gaunt of an old school friend of hers, Steve Chambers, who could assist Gaunt in executing a massive cash robbery of the Loomis Fargo vault in one night. Chambers had broached the possibility of a robbery to Campbell earlier in the summer. The plan was for Gaunt to commit the actual robbery and then quickly leave the country for Mexico, but to leave the bulk of the cash with Chambers. Chambers would then occasionally wire Gant money and see to his basic financial needs when the heat was off. Gant was to re-enter the United States, and the money would be split up, um, uh, split up among all of the co-conspirators. All right, now let's talk about the crime. The crime is very, very important to talk about, isn't it? Okay. Now, with the plan in place, Scan sent a newly hired employee he had been assigned to train home earlier, reportedly at 6 p.m., and then proceeded to load a little more than $17.3 million in cash, approximately $11 million, of which was in $20 bills, into the back of a company van. Outside of the building, Gant met up with Campbell, Chambers, and others who were involved in the plot and drove off to a printing business called Reynolds & Reynolds in northwest Charlotte. From there, the money was moved from an armored car to private vehicles. Then, keeping with the plan, Gant took $57, the maximum that could be, by law, be taken across the border without further authorization with him and left for Mexico winding up the popular Yucatan Peninsula resort of Comozo. After successfully tracing Gant's phone call, FBI agents and Mexican police arrested Gant on March 1, 1998, at Pelo del Carmen, a resort near, resort near Comozel. The next day, Steve and Michelle Cambers, Chambers Campbell and four other gang members were arrested. And that was the 1997 Loomis Fargo robbery in North Carolina. Okay, so, so far we talked about the um, Great Brinks robbery, the 1998 Bank of America robbery, and the case of Clyde and Bonnie, and we just talked about the 1997 um, Loomis Fargo robbery in North Carolina. 
So we're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break. And after commercial break, we're going to have one more robbery to talk about. And this is a very deadly robbery. This is a robbery that led to a massive shootout. But today's show is being sponsored by some wonderful sponsors who make sure that the Ace Network stays premium. And we would not be broadcasting for an hour if it was not for our wonderful sponsors. So we're going to go ahead and take a moment to hear what our sponsors have to say. When we come back, we're going to hear about a deadly shootout and a deadly robbery that led to a shootout. So today's commercial break is being sponsored by Akari Seals USA, School of Fish, Inc., Cheesecakes by Design, Dakota Network's Paranormal Hour, the Euphoric Network, and AC Food Review on YouTube. Don't forget to call in at 1-347-989-8142 to share any robbery stories you might have. So stick around. We've got that wonderful Hollywood robbery and Hollywood shootout coming up next here on our second episode of Crime Time. Hikari offers a wide selection of aquatic diets to help you and your fishy friend find success. With more than 137 years of aquatic experience, Hikari was the originator of species-specific diets long before others thought it was important or trendy and the first to bring unique products to fish keepers like algae wafers, the world's first diet specifically formulated for Picosinus, micropellets, the world's first micro-coated aquatic diet for tropical fish, Saki Akari, the world's first probiotic-enhanced diet for koi, goldfish, cichlid, and now turtles, and Biopure, the world's cleanest and most nutrition-packed frozen and freeze-dried foods, industry trendsetters when they were first introduced. When you're looking for the best aquatic diets your hard-earned money can buy for your aquatic pets, look no further than Hikari. Your fish and your wallet will be forever grateful. School of Fish, Inc. offers everything an aquarium hobbyist in western Massachusetts needs. We offer the best alive stock from fresh water to salt water and everything in between. We also have the best corals and live rock. School of Fish, Inc. carries the best brands of fish food, medications, and equipment such as Hikari, Tetra, Marineland, API, and much more. Stop by and check us out today. School of Fish, Inc. located at 1865 Page Boulevard, Springfield, Massachusetts, and we can be reached at 413-543-1994. We're open Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, closed Tuesdays. Check out School of Fish, Inc. That's School of Fish, I-N-C on Facebook for exclusive deals, specials, and see what's new. Are you looking for something creamy, moist, and decadent in your life? Do you have a sweet tooth? Well, cheesecakes are the answer for you. Cheesecake by Design offers you a wide variety of cheesecakes and some wonderful flavors. At Cheesecake by Design, you will find a flavor just for you, whatever it be. A red velvet cheesecake, a strawberry cheesecake, or a cookies and cream cheesecake. We have tons of flavors to fit your needs. We ship fresh cheesecakes all over the United States straight to your door. So next time you're hosting a party, a family get-together, or a cookout, and you need dessert... 
Order a delicious, moist, creamy cheesecake from Cheesecake by Design. Our cheesecakes are always homemade and made with the freshest possible ingredients. Check out our website and call 336-525-5120 with any questions or to place an order. Are you interested in the paranormal? Do you find it interesting when people tell ghost stories or tell you stories about things that have happened to them that they cannot explain? Then, if you are, join me, Andrew J., on the Dakota Network as I interview paranormal investigators, cryptozoologists, and everything paranormal. You won't be disappointed. So please feel free to come over to the Dakota Network. That's Dakota Network on Blog Talk Radio. And listen to me live as I interview these interesting people. I will have paranormal investigators on there that are going to share EVPs. They're going to talk about some of the more interesting stories they have. So please, come over and check me out. You won't be disappointed. And thank you for your time. into the Alex Cardinelli Show, live with your host, Alex Cardinelli. We hope you enjoyed our nice music and commercial break and are ready for some fun discussion. What is Alex going to chat about now? Get involved with social media and tweet your thoughts on tonight's topic. Tweet to at Alex Cardinelli 1, capital A in Alex and C in Cardinelli. 
Now let's get back to the action. Here's Alex live from the Blog Talk Radio Studio in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's Crime Time Live on ACE Network. The only time where Alex will break the rules as a citizen to talk about some of the most famous crimes to have ever taken place in the United States. If you love crime, then this is the time to listen to crime. Coming up right now, we will discuss crime and everything crime. Call in at one 989 8142 to discuss a crime story you like or join the chat. Now it's crime time. Live in. Okay, we're back here live on Crime Time Hour. And tonight we're discussing famous robberies that have taken place in the United States of America. And so far we have discussed the cases of Bonnie and Clyde, 1998 Bank of America robbery, the 1997 Lomas Fargo robbery in South Carolina, and the Great Bank robbery. And we've also discussed the possible motives for robbery, and I discussed some robberies from the western Massachusetts area. I've got one more robbery that I am going to discuss on tonight's episode, and this is perhaps the most deadliest robbery ever in the United States of America. Yes, you heard me correct. This could be considered the most deadliest robbery in the United States of America. All right. Now, before I get into that, I want to remind you guys that you could call in live at 1-347-989-8142 to discuss any robberies that you know of, discuss the robberies that took place in your local neck of the woods, or share any robbery stories you might have. That's 1-347-989-8142, and we look forward to hearing from you. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the last robbery story that I have for you tonight, and that is the North Hollywood Shootout. The North Hollywood Shootout was an armed confrontation between two heavily armed and armed, or, or excuse me, two heavily armed and armored bank robbers and officers of the Los Angeles Police Department in the North Hollywood District of Los Angeles on February 28, 1997. Can you guys believe that? The robbers were armed, and they were armored in armored clothes. Very, 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 very smart. Now, both robbers were killed. Eleven police officers and seven civilians were injured, and numerous vehicles and other property were damaged or destroyed by the approximate 1,750 rounds of ammunition fired by the robbers and police officers. At 9.17 a.m. in the morning, Larry Phillips Jr. and email Matasarino entered and robbed the North Hollywood Bank of America branch. Phillips and Matasarino were confronted by LAPD officers when they exited the bank and a shootout between the officers and robbers ensued. The two officers, or excuse me, the two robbers attempted to flee the scene, Phillips on foot and Matasarino in their getaway vehicle while continuing to engage the officers. The shootout continued onto a residential street adjacent to the bank 
until Philip was mortally wounded, including by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Masarino was killed by officers three blocks away. Phillips and Masarino are believed to have robbed at least two other banks using virtually identical methods by taking control of the entire bank and firing automatic weapons chambered with intermediate cartridges for control and entry put past bulletproof security doors and are possible suspects in two armored vehicle robberies. Due to the large number of injuries, rounds fired, weapons used, and overall length of the shootout, it is regarded as one of the longest and bloodiest events in American police history. The two men had fired approximately 1,100 rounds, while approximately 650 rounds were fired by the police. All right. Now, let's talk about the robbery. Phillips and Maserano, driving a white 1987 Chevrolet, arrived. So Phillips and Maserano, driving a white 1987 Chevrolet Celebrity, arrived at the Bank of America branch office at the intersection of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Arkwood Street in North Hollywood around 9.17 in the morning and set their watch alarm for eight minutes. The police response time they had estimated. To come up with this time frame, Phillips had used a radio scanner to monitor police transmissions prior to the robberies. But as the two were walking in, they were spotted by two L.A. police officers, Lauren Florell and Martin Pirelli, who were driving down Laurie Cowan in a patrol car. Officer Pirelli issued a call on the radio, 15A43, requesting assistance. We have a possible 211 in progress at the Bank of America. 211 is the code for an armed robbery. As they entered the bank, Phillips and Massaro forced a customer, leaving the ATM lobby near the entrance, into the bank and onto the floor. A security guard inside saw the scruffle and the heavily armed robbers and radioed his partner in the parking lot to call the police. The call was not received. Phillips shouted, this is a fucking holdup, before he and Masario opened fire into the ceiling in an attempt to scare the approximately 30 bank staff and customers and to discourage resistance. Masario shot open the bulletproof door. It was designed to resist only smaller caliber rounds and gained access to the tellers in vault. The robbers forced assistant manager John Villagrant to open the vault. Villagrani obliged and began to fill a robber's money bag. However, due to change in the bank's delivery schedule, the vault contained significantly less than the $7,500 the gunmen had expected. Massario, seemingly enraged at this development, argued with Villagrana and demanded more. In an apparent show of frustration, Massasaro then fired a full-drum magnum of 75 rounds to the bank safe, destroying much of the remaining money. In the end, the two would leave with only $300,305. The shootout. 
Outside, the first responding officers heard gunfire from the bank and made another radio call for additional units before taking cover behind their patrol car, weapons trained on the bank doors. While the robbers were still inside, more patrol and detective units arrived and took strategic, uh, strategic positions at all four corners of the bank, effectively surrounding it. At approximately 9.32 in the morning, Phyllis exited through the north doorway and briefly looked around, possibly to survey the positions of police. Officers shouted repeatedly for Phyllis to drop his weapon and surrender, but he turned around and walked back inside. Several minutes later, he reemerged from the north doorway while Manasasaro exited through the south. Phillips and Manasasaro began to engage the officers, firing spartic bursts into the patrol cars that had been positioned on Laurel Cannon in front of the bank. Officers immediately returned fire. The patrol officers were armed with standard Beretta 92F, Barrett 92FS 9mm pistols and Smith and Wesson model 15.38 caliber revolvers, while officers including James Zebrazon also carried a 12 gag model 37 pump action shotgun. The officers' weaponry could not penetrate armored body armor worn by Phillips and Massario, which covered most of their bodies and provided more bullet resistance than standard issue police vest. The robbers' heads were the only vital organs that were unprotected, but most of the LAPD officers' service pistols had insignificant range and poor accuracy at long distance. Numerous police officers and civilians were wounded in the seven to eight minutes from when the shooting began to when Masasaro entered the robber's white sedan to make a getaway. By this time, television news helicopters were arriving on the scene and SWAT commanders would use the live coverage to pass critical time-sensitive information to officers on the ground. Madison Nero urged Phillips to get into the vehicle, but Phillips remained outside of it, retrieved AK-91 from the trunk, and continued firing on officers and helicopters while crouching behind the cars in the parking lot. All right. So let's get to the great information, because everything else is just uh, information that we really don't need to know. At 9.52, Phillips, who had been using the getaway vehicle as cover, separated from his partner, Messinario. Turning east on Archwood Street, he took cover behind the park truck and continued to fire at the police until his rifle jammed. He attempted to clear the jam, but ultimately discarded the weapon, drew a Beretta 92FS pistol, and continuing firing at the police. He was then shot in the right hand, causing him to drop the pistol. After retrieving it, he placed a muzzle under his chin and fired. As his body fell, a bullet struck the back of his neck, severing his spine, killing him instantly. Officers across the street continued to shoot Phillips several times while he was on the ground. After the firing had stopped, officers in the area surrounded Phillips, cuffed him, and removed his ski mask. It is speculated that his death was accidental, being unable to pull the backside of the Beretta with his injured hand, he attempted to do so with his teeth, and the gun unintentionally discharged. So that's how the first suspect died, Phillips.
Now, um, Masanario's vehicle was rendered nearly inoperable after his tires were shot out. At 9.56 in the morning, he attempted to carjack a yellow 1963 Jeep Gladiator pickup truck on Arkwood, three blocks east of where Phillips died, and transferred all of his weapons and an emission from the getaway car into the truck. However, sources say Massanero was unable to start the truck because the driver had turned the vehicle and fuel pumps off, leaving the keys in the ignition. Others say that it was because the driver had taken the keys with him after fleeing the car. As KCBS and KCAL helicopters hoovered overhead, a patrol car driven by SWAT officers quickly arrived. Monasario left the truck, took cover behind the original getaway car, and engaged them for two and a half minutes of almost uninterrupted gunfire. Monasario's chest armor deflected a double tap from one of the SWAT officers, but it briefly winded him. After several seconds, he continued firing. At least one SWAT officer fired his AR-15 below the cars and wounded Masanario in his unprotected lower legs. He was, soon, he was soon unable to continue and put his hands up to show surrender. Seconds after his defeat, officers warned him to pin him down. As he was being cuffed, SWAT officers asked for his name, to which he replied, Pete. When asked if there was any more suspects, he, report, he reportedly retarded, fuck you, shoot me in the head. The police radioed for an ambulance, but Montessario, loudly swearing profusely and still going to pussy shoot him, died before the ambulance and the EMTs were allowed to reach the scene almost, 20, 20, almost 70 minutes later. So he died from bleeding out 70 minutes later. Report shows that Masanero was shot over 20 times in the legs and died from trauma due to ex excessive blood loss coming from two gunshot wounds in his left side. Most of the incident, including the death of Phillips and the death of Masanario, was broadcast live by news helicopters, which hoovered over the scene and televised the action as events unfolded. Over 300 law enforcement officers from various forces had responded to the citywide TAC alert. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is all of our famous robberies of the United States of America. I hope you guys learned a lot about the show, or excuse me, I hope you guys learned a lot from this show. I um, hope you guys enjoyed the show. I hope you guys learned a lot about robberies on this show. I learned a lot about robberies, so hopefully you guys did too. I hope you guys enjoyed me talking about all these robberies, and I hope you guys understand some of the most famous robberies in the United States of America. Now, I am going to have more shows on robberies, not just this one. There's going to be a ton of shows where I will be talking about robberies. So I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to my robbery show tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I'm sorry if my voice is kind of awful tonight, but I hope you guys enjoyed this show. You know, I really do love this crime time hour, and I had fun tonight. All right? So make sure you guys listen to all my shows here on the Ace Network. I hope you guys enjoy them all. Now, the Crime Time Hour airs every other Friday here on the Ace Network. And my next topic for Crime Time Hour will be famous kidnappings and famous rapes in the United States of America. Yes, I know, a very controversial crime and a very sad crime. I'll talk about famous kidnappings and famous rapes 
for crimes. All right, if you enjoy crime, make sure you tune in every other Friday here on Ace Network at 8 p.m. Eastern to learn about some new crime that I'm going to talk about. Follow me on Facebook, Ace Network, and add me as a friend on Facebook, Alice Cardinelli. With that being said, thank you for tuning into the show. Keep safe, everyone. I hope none of my listeners ever run into danger of crime. So keep safe, everyone. Have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to tonight's episode of Crime Time Hour. I'm Alice Cardinelli, and you can find the Ace Network right here on Block Talk Radio. You can find the Ace Network on Stitcher, YouTube, and on iTunes. Good night, everyone, and have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Alex Cardinelli Show here on Ace Network. Alex hopes you enjoyed the show. Please check us out every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern for our weekly talk show that will cover anything and everything. Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern for Chef George Morello Hour. Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern for our fun Saturday Night Live and every other Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern for Cooking with Al Cardinelli, where you'll get tasty and delicious recipes. Share today's show on your Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus account by copying and pasting our show URL to your account so that your friends can listen to our awesome talk show. Have a great night. Alex Cardinelli's show on 8th. It's now off the air. And show. Today's podcast belongs to the Ace Network, Alice Cardelli Entertainment Network. It may not be reused, redistributed without permission from Alice Cardinelli himself. This podcast was recorded live from the Springfield, Massachusetts studio and Ace Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.